Well, welcome. Thanks again for being here at Grace. We're excited to have you. And actually, today's the day. We're kicking off a new series, and we're live streaming into all of our campuses today. And we've got uh, Bloomville joining us, so it's great to have them with us as well. And we're just having a, a good time. Uh, this new series, we, we've invited our community in really to rethink God a little bit. And so if you're new and you're here at Grace, first of all, if, uh, if you're an atheist or, or just skeptical, I'd just like to say we're glad that you're with us. Thanks for being here at Grace. And I'd like to give you a little bit of a challenge, um, and that is that you not just come to this talk, but that this is a series and that you come to the, the next three times that we're talking about this. Um, because I, I think it'll help, and we're trying to catch everybody, and uh, we just they, each each talk builds on the other one to to make this case. If you're an agnostic, if, if you think, well, yeah, maybe God, maybe not, and maybe your mantra is, there's no way that that we could know truth. We just can't know the truth, which is a t- self-defeating statement in, in its own right. But uh, you know, I would just encourage you that, uh, that we have to, to do the hard work to figure out what ass- assertions about uh, spirituality or God or human nature are true and which are false, and we just have to work through that. If you're a believer, um, especially if you're a believer that's sending a student off to college, I'd like to say something. And that is this. Casual Christianity cannot stand up to forceful secularism. Casual Christianity that's just on the surface that you're not really living out, it doesn't stand up when students show up on campus and they're faced with a forceful secularism or a forceful atheism. Um, And our world is becoming increasingly anti-Christian, and our culture in America is becoming increasingly anti-Christian. You just got to know that. There's a whole crop of of self-identified new atheists led by uh, Dawkins and Harris and Hitchens, who's, who's passed away, who are adamant, forcefully teaching and preaching that there is no God, and, and attacking Christianity especially, but, but theism in general. And so, and that's why we're doing the series that we're doing. Last week, we looked at a verse in Scripture, 1 Peter 3.15, that tells us as believers that we should have an answer ready for all who ask about the hope that we have within us, and that we should do that with, with gentleness and respect. And, and that's what this series is all about. But I, I got to warn you, especially it, that this sermon is going to be way different than m- most sermons. And it, it's, it's not going to be what, what a lot of us people that are here at Grace are probably going to expect. <laughs> I'm a little bit nervous about that because we, we, I, I have drifted off into the philosophical weeds a little bit here. And I experienced that last, last sermon. I was like, Wow. You know, and so I'm going to try to pull myself out a little bit and, and make this make sense. Here's the deal. Um, has anybody, anybody watched the McGregor fight? No, I won't even change the topic. But anyway, um, here's the deal. 
We have to have a reason that we can give to people for our faith. And although there's this new atheistic attack on theism and Christianity in particular, they never answer the biggest questions in life. And Christianity does. And Christianity can withstand any attack against it. But you can't be a casual Christian. You have to live out your Christianity, think it through, and have the Christian belief system that the Bible teaches in order to withstand those types of attacks. For example, biggest questions in life could be just, why are we here? And how should I live? Why? Why? The why question has to do with meaningness. Meaning. What's, what's our meaning in life? And so I want to just work through this. Again, it's a little philosophical. Try to hang with me. I, I'm not even sure where I'm at on this. You know, just, just stick with me. But I'm just going to go through a series of questions. The first is just briefly uh, what, what is meaning? What do we mean by that? Why do we need it? Where do we get it? Where do we get meaning? How do we apply it to our lives? So what is it? Well, we know what meaning means. I remember one time I was in high school, and I was given the assignment to define meaning without using a derivative of that word. Define meaning without using the word, which can be a little difficult. But basically, meaning has two senses. When we talk about to mean it, it really has to do with purpose and significance. Um, purpose, intent, w- did you mean to hurt her? We get that. And then significance. Hey, this medal that I'm awarding this soldier means that he displayed bravery above and beyond the call of duty. So, and sometimes they come together. So we all get what meaning is. It's to have a purpose and significance in life. And... Uh, And we all feel that we should have this. The trouble is, a lot of times people get so busy with life that they don't slow down and think about that. And I think that's true of millennials and other people. You're just blitzing along, and a lot of times you wait until you've achieved a lot of your goals in life, and then you look back and and you're reflecting, and it's like, what is all this about? I, I remember reading a story years ago, Tom Brady, first time he won the Super Bowl, and they were talking about him. He was reflecting back on it that same year, and, and he was just like, is this it? That he experienced this disappointment, this disillusionment, on that, and that's what happens. People work their whole lives, they drive toward a goal, and then when they reach the goal, it doesn't bring the satisfaction and the meaning that they thought, and they're just kind of standing around going, well, is that it? This can't be all there is. And I'm telling you, do not wait till the end of your life to figure that out. Think through that now before you waste your life pursuing something that doesn't bring meaning. And by the way, this is the problem with the whole new atheist position is, if we've just come from evolution, if we're we're just a chance collection of molecules, then this life really doesn't mean anything. It's just an accident that we're even here. Well, that's what we're talking about when we talk about meaning. And it seems like when we stop and look at a sunset or evaluate our life or look at a newborn, we just feel that there, there's meaning 
in life, some ultimate objective meaning in life. But we hear people all the time, a lot of times after they've achieved stuff, hey, I'm not feeling it. It feels meaningless. So why do we need meaning? Why do we need meaning? Psychologists tell, tell us after observation and studies that, hey, there is a fundamental human need for a reason to live, meaning in life. I, I read of one account uh, where a, a, a new doctor went to a nursing home, a, a large nursing home, and he convinced the administrators to bring in a bunch of animals, dogs and cats and and rabbits and, and all that, and, and they had those there, and then, and then they studied the, the dramatic effect that it had on the people in the nursing home. People who had seemingly checked out and were, were lethargic, were showing up at the nurse's desk saying, hey, I'll take the dog for a walk. And through the care of these animals, people had more meaning in life and so the study showed that uh, the need and use of psychiatric drugs, drugs dropped 38% to 38% of what it was previously, and that even uh, death dropped 15% ju just by ha introducing a little bit of meaning. Of course, that's not answering the big questions in life, but that is speaking to why it's important. Humans are the only creatures who wonder about the meaning of life. And again, don't wait a lifetime before you start pondering this issue. Now, what's weird about this sermon is we're, we're not talking about the Bible much here. Normally, we go through a passage of the Bible, apply it to our lives, and this is really not that way. Although there is one passage that really does speak to meaning and takes it face on. It's in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes, it it, it, it that book's introduced by the author with this cry for meaning. It goes this way. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's a pretty strong statement. Kind of depressing, isn't it? So he throws it out there. And some of you will recognize, maybe don't recognize this because this word is also translated vanity. Vanity, vanity of vanities which is just a, an older way of translating this term. The term literally just means breath or vapor. It just means if this is it, if this is all there is, it's just fleeting, it just lasts, and then it's gone forever, then life doesn't mean anything. And the author is King Solomon. He's writing 3,000 years ago, and if you read through with a philosophical kind of a mind, it's amazingly up to date in what he's saying. Because what, what he's saying is he starts talking about life under the sun. And when he says that, life under the sun, he's saying this material world, if this is all there is, if it's just life under the sun, apart from God, if God's not in the picture, then life ultimately really doesn't mean anything. And he's exactly right. It doesn't. There's nothing, if there's nothing more to life than this material world, then ultimately our life is meaningless but yet we have this need, this deep need, that often we don't even think about until it's too late. We have this deep need for meaning. And so the question is, where do we get meaning? I mean, you have this problem of meaning. We crave meaning. 
The fact that we even crave meaning when we take the time to think about it, and often people don't, but the fact that we even crave that is an argument for objective, universal meaning. For example, we crave food. Why do we crave? Well, we crave food, and guess what? Food exists. We crave physical intimacy, and guess what? That exists too. You can make an argument that the things that we crave, we don't always experience, but they exist or we would not crave them. The same is true for meaning. It exists. That points to its existence. But if we exist as an accidental collection of atoms, then there's no purpose and we're just accidents in the universe. Then our whole craving for meaning, it makes no sense. It, it, it defies purpose. So this is a huge struggle for evolutionists and atheists and secularists because they realize this, that they're really teaching no meaning. For example, Stephen Jay Gould, who's a scientist and evolutionist, he wrote that there is simply no meaning to life. And then here's this quote, which he says is, quote, though superficially troubling if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating. And he goes on to say we must construct those answers for ourselves. What he's saying is, in his view, Gould is saying, there really is no meaning or purpose to life because we're just going to be worm food, so it doesn't really matter. And although that's troubling and maybe even terrifying, he's saying it's also liberating. In his view, that's liberating because what he's saying is if there's no meaning, then we can just go do whatever we want because there is no objective meaning. It doesn't matter, so it's very freeing. But this is very interesting because most, first of all, don't feel that way. That's not how we experience life. And so what's happened is this is the view of atheists and evolutionists but now new atheism has come along, and new atheism has happened since 9-11, and much more um, antagonistic and aggressive and offensive against Christianity. And then one of the new atheists kind of bailed out the other new atheists to say, hey, you, you, we secularists can, it's possible for us to have meaning in life, and, and they kind of come up with this. And here's what they would say. There is no objective meaning in life, again, evolutionists, secularists, but you have freedom to create your own meaning, and then life can be as happy and as meaningful as you make it. Now, there's two questions to evaluate, because now this is what all new atheists would say. There's no objective meaning, but you have the freedom to create your own meaning. What's interesting about this is they're coming from a postmodernist perspective where they're saying there's absolutely no absolutes, there's no truth claims, we don't know anything, we're all just an accident and we're worm food later and it doesn't matter, and in a million years everything's going to be gone anyway, blah, blah, blah. So that's what they would say. And they say there's no truth claims, but as they're saying that there's no meaning in life, they actually smuggle in an absolute, because they're saying there are no absolutes, to make their case. And, the, and the, what they're smuggling in is freedom. Notice, he's saying, hey, there's this value. We are free. There's no real meaning, but we're free. We have freedom to create our own. 
Well, all the, well, why is freedom so important? Who says that's an absolute? Who says that's the greater good? That's a moral absolute to say freedom is good. They smuggle that in as a way of saying, this is where I get into philosophical weeds. Are you hanging with me? This is the way they're saying this. They're saying there's no absolute meaning in life or any absolutes, but yet we can have freedom. They're using an absolute to say that there's no meaning in life. They're creating freedom as the ultimate meaning in life. So that is an absolute. Are you sticking with me there? That's what I mean about the theological, not the theological, the philosophical weeds. But that view is not consistent because they do smuggle an absolute of freedom. It's also not practical. It's not practical because it's, you can't get it. It's only in your head. It's just what you think. It has no practical value on the world around you. I'll give you an example. Uh, some of you know that a couple of months ago, I went to, back to Colorado, my hometown. I went to a, a high school reunion. And I saw a guy that I knew, and and he had a circle of friends here, and I kind of sat down, and then he told some stories about us that I had completely forgotten. So I'm going to tell you a story I've never told before until first hour, and I'll probably never tell again. But anyway, so after graduation, one summer, I decided I had some time off, a few days off work, and I decided I was going to drive from Colorado out to California and go to the beach, you know, hit the coast. So, and I ran into this guy. I, I wasn't real close friends with him. I knew him. We, we actually spent some time. One, one season, I was on a, the swim team in our high school, you know, after football, whatever. And, and I did, and he, I, I think that's how I, I knew him in high school, but I also knew him in junior high. But anyway, I run into this guy, Nick, and I tell Nick, yeah, you know, what you up to? Well, I'm actually heading to California, going to drive out there. And he says, well, I'll go with you. And he says, I could get some time off. So he goes with us. So, we get in my car, which was a Plymouth Cricket, which is a whole nother story. We get in this little car, and we start heading to California. Then we pick up a guy who's actually heading to California that neither one of us know, just to give him a ride, who's from California. So we're driving night and day, 20, you know, we drove night and day, no stopping, straight through to California. And we get there, as I recall, super early in the morning, and then we splurged and checked into a very cheap hotel, nowhere near the beach, but a place that we could afford. And then as we're doing all that, and I'm dead tired, I've driven all night, and then I realize, I look around and I notice something different about all the California people, is they're all tan, and I'm alabaster white. <laughs> and so, as we're, we're going to go to the beach in the afternoon, but before that I decide I'm going to go sit out in the sun. And so I, I go out and there's this little bitty scum-covered pool at the place, and I'm sitting in a chair there. Well, I haven't, I've driven all night. I fell asleep. So I, and I was only asleep for probably 40 minutes or so. And Nick had come out and sat there too. He was sleeping when I first did that. And so I, I wake up, and I am just burnt. I'm shredded. I'm just like, just torched. And so we're getting ready to hit the beach, And this guy that we had given a ride and dropped off at his relative's house, we were asking him, what are the best beaches? You know, we thought, we'll hit the beach, we'll meet some girls, you know, this will be great. And he tells us Newport Beach and Huntington Beach. And and somewhere in the conversation with Nick and I and him, you know, he said, well, what are you guys wearing out to the beach? You know, and, and we say, well, for us, anytime you're in the water outdoors, you wore cutoffs, cutoff jeans, and so we we're wearing a cutoff jeans, swimsuit underneath kind of a deal. And, uh, and he says, this guy tells us, who's from California, 
Do not wear cutoffs. Nobody wears cutoffs. No girl will talk to you if you wear cutoffs. Okay. So we drive to the beach in our cutoffs, and, and when we get out, we decide, okay, we're going to lose the cutoffs. And so we drop, we get out of the car, my cricket, and we drop the cutoffs. And, and I mentioned that I had known him from a high school swim team for a reason, because I didn't have a swimsuit except for my high school swim team swimsuit that I normally wore under my cutoffs, and which was made by Speedo. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I kind of reluctantly dropped my cutoffs, and then he drops his cutoffs, and he's got a matching pair of the very, of the very same swimsuit. And so we head for, you know, and we're, we parked a couple blocks away, so we head for the beach. And, and if you could picture this, and, and I know maybe you shouldn't picture, because normally when you picture Speedos, you're picturing an Olympian swimmer. Neither one of us were Olympian swimmers, so that's not the image. And, uh, and I am caked on the front side with um, sunscreen you know, thick, because I'm already torched on one side, I'm alabaster white on the other side, you know, so we start walking to the beach in our matching Speedos. <laughs> Nobody on the entire beach was wearing a Speedo, I, I can guarantee you that. Every other guy on the beach was wearing, you know, board shorts, just shorts. And, uh, and we get there, and we kind of make a claim, and, and the thing about the beach is you're always looking for a place where it's not too crowded, and we, we find a place which increasingly became very easy to do, and I'll explain why. But we sat in a place, and then sure enough, we're not there like five minutes, and we notice this group of four girls about our age sitting not too far away, and they're kind of looking over and smiling, and we're like, wow, is California great or what? <laughs> and then slowly, to our horror, we realize they're not smiling to us, they're laughing at us. And then we also, we know some other phenomena. Not only are people laughing at us, we're realizing that people are really making a huge space around us. People are moving their kids away, and, you know, <laughs> girls are going to other parts of the beach, and, and, then, and we are just kind of isolated. You know, Nick's probably got his scuba gear and flippers. You know, who knows what we look like to them. But, but here's, here's my point. In our heads… We were cool guys, you know, ready to, to meet some California girls. But the reality was nobody saw us that way. Nobody. Everybody saw us as a couple of freaks on the beach who didn't know anything, you know, about how to dress or be socially appropriate or anything else. You know, so what, what am I saying? I'm saying this. To some degree, the world is independent of our interpretations. We can think whatever we think, and you know, we can use these phrases, you know, my truth is my truth, your truth, which is silly, but we can do all that. But at some point, the world's independent of our interpretations of the world. The world is the world. Truth is truth, whether we recognize it or not. Another way of saying the same thing is, you can believe that all wild mountain lions are cuddly and friendly, but when you meet one on the trail in the wilderness, if that's your belief, well, you won't be around to tell the story, I guess, because that's not reality. See, and that's the problem with a meaning that we, 
we create. So if we define meaning as having both a purpose and significance, knowing that you're serving some good, the question is, can we have meaning in life apart from God? Big question, big question in life that we should all think about at some point. Can we have meaning or purpose in life if there is no God? And the answer to that used to always be no. But now new atheists have come up with an argument to say that that you can have meaning apart from God, and, and they have a line of reasoning for that. And because of that, so I'll say, can you have meaning or purpose in life apart from God, without, if there is no God? And then I would say, well, in a sense, yes, new atheist argument, but in another sense, absolutely not, no. Now, in a sense, you can have meaning, and that's this, because the new atheist argument is to say that because they used to always say, well, there is no meaning. That, you just live with it. You know, too bad, no meaning, just, just hang. But now they say, no, an atheist or a person who doesn't believe in God, if there is no God, we can still have meaning. And we can do that by doing something for other people. So, for example, if your meaning in life is to be a good parent, well, then that gives you a purpose and significance, therefore, by definition, it gives you meaning in life. Or if you're, you can make your meaning in life to tutor underprivileged students. Or you can make it your meaning in life to help the poor. And so that gives you a purpose and some significance. But So yes, in that sense. But can you have meaning in life if there is no God? No, in another sense. For example, if you create your own meaning... Uh, Apart from God, the problem is that secular people are, are unwilling to admit that there's a difference between self-created meaning and objective or universal or discovered meaning. And there's a huge difference because we used to always be talking about the second, and now they've introduced this other way of looking at it. You see, without God, there is no ultimate meaning in life. Yeah, you can have a purpose in your life for a little while, but ultimately, if there's no God, if we're just a, a, an accidental accumulation of molecules, how we live our life, what we do, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, it does not matter. Ultimately, we're just worm food. It doesn't matter. Now, it might matter to a few people for a little while. While they are on earth, we might make people sadder or happier by the way we live. But ultimately, that doesn't matter because who says happy is the way it should be? There is no meaning, discovered meaning, or ultimate meaning, or objective meaning apart from God. But now, this created meaning. You see... Ultimate meaning exists apart from our interpretations. It's not just in our head. It's reality. But the new atheists use created meaning to say, hey, we can come up with this. The problem is 
that there, it's not objectively there. It's only subject, subjective. It's only in your head. It's, on, it's totally just something that you're inventing. It, it's, it's wholly dependent on your feelings. It's just inside your head. That's all there is. And the problem with that is that created meanings are much more fragile than discovered or ultimate meaning because they're based on feelings and feelings change. And so you can have created meaning for a while, but, but you could just change and not feel like that's meaningful anymore. And then you're back to no meaning. Created meaning is less rational than ultimate or objective or discovered meaning. It's less rational and it's less durable. And here's what I mean by that. If, if this life is all there is, if we're just an accident, then whether I'm a mass murderer or somebody who lives to help the poor, it really doesn't matter. First of all, there really is no right and wrong. We'll talk more about that later. But it doesn't matter how I live. Because ultimately, it's all nothing anyway. Nothing lasts forever. And so we just have a few years on earth, and and then it all goes away. So it doesn't matter if you're fighting hunger in Africa, or you're in Africa withholding intended food to a starving community and withholding it for your own profit. There really wouldn't mean any difference. If there's no God, there's no meaning. Whatever you do, in the end, it doesn't matter. And the amazing thing is when secular or evolutionary or atheist thinkers talk about this, the advice they actually give their followers is that you will be happier if you do not think about the bigger questions in life. What they're saying is, you'll be happier if you will be less rational and less cognitive about these issues. For example, here's the way one secular writer says it. He says, no one with this set of beliefs, meaning you believe in evolution and you're a secularist, there is no God. No one with this set of beliefs can get peace and meaning from daily life unless he stops thinking about the implications of his beliefs. Can you? Is that crazy or what? So the leading thinkers of the movement are saying, if you want to experience peace and meaning in life, don't think about the big questions because they have no answer for that. So stop thinking. Now, that's created meaning, but on the flip side is what we call discovered meaning or objective or universal meaning, meaning there's meaning in the universe. We just have to find it, you know, figure it out what it is. From the Christian perspective, for example, discovered meaning means that we're created with a purpose and that there is meaning in life. But it it, it tackles the question, the big questions, in totally the opposite way 
that the secularists do. For example, if a true Christian is feeling, having a bad day or feeling down or questioning the meaning in life, you know, which I guess could happen to anybody, the answer for a Christian is, is not, hey, stop thinking about the bigger questions. The answer for the Christian is to think about the bigger questions. Think about the implications of the universe as you know it's revealed to be. And the more you think about it, then the better off you'll be. It's just the opposite. Be rational. And not only is discovered meaning more rational than created meaning, it's also more durable. Let me explain. In created meaning, if you just made up your own meaning, when you experience suffering and stuff, well, that strips that away and you're back to no meaning. But with discovered meaning, with ultimate or objective or universal meaning, if a Christian has a bad day or a painful experience or, or they're fe feeling meaningless, not only do they think, but think about the endurance of it when they go through uh, suffering. If you believe the universe is the way that Scripture says it is, then even when you go through suffering, if your meaning in life is to know God and enjoy Him forever, if your meaning in life is to know God and to serve Him by getting to know Him better, well, then all of a sudden, suffering doesn't strip that away. Suffering for a Christian can actually enhance our meaning in life because it can cause us to draw closer to Him. So ultimate, objective, discovered meaning is not only more rational, it has more endurance. And then the, the last question, how do we apply the meaning in our lives? So you have Solomon. He, he's an ancient king. He, he's rich. And he's saying, meaningless, meaningless. And if you read through his book, which again is amazingly up to date, here's what he does. He actually enters into this thought experiment. And because he's a wealthy king, he has a lot of resources, he then sets about trying to find meaning and satisfaction in every area of life under the sun, meaning in, in every area of life in this strictly material world with no thought, as if God doesn't exist. And so he does that. He enters into that, and because he's wealthy and he can do this, you know, he starts trying all these areas. Sensual pleasure. He has many wives, concubines, all kinds of women. You know, he tries that. He, he tries to get his meaning from philosophy and learning. He, he, then, he goes all in on work and achievement. And he builds all kinds of things and invents stuff and all this stuff's happening. And, and in the end of it, he says... None of this stuff works. And so he sums up in his book, Ecclesiastes, he finally basically says, he says, if, if life under the sun, if just the material world is all there is, then life is ultimately meaningless. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, 14, he says, 
The conclusion, he's at the end of his book, he finally says this. The conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. And what does he do there? He brings in the concept of God. He says, without God, nothing makes any sense. And that's exactly true. And then he also brings in the life and the end of our life. And he basically says, hey, and there's a God, and he's a judge. You see, from the Christian perspective, here's what we're saying. Life has been given to us from God. Actually, there's a creator of the universe. There's a rational creator, and there's tons of arguments from science and everything else, and we'll get to all that. And I know that we're in the philosophical weeds. Just hang with me. We're going to wrap this up, and it'll be better next week, all right? But anyway, here's what he's saying. God's saying that he created the universe and he created life, which there's no other explanation for either one of those things. And that he created mankind in his image, which means that he created us as rational beings so that we can think and ponder even the meaning of life. But creating us as rational beings, we can then have a relationship with God. And on top of that, he gives us freedom, which is a good thing because God says it's a good thing. But he gives us freedom in order to choose to have a relationship with him because you can't force relationships. But because of this freedom, Scripture teaches us that we all rebelled against God. Sin and selfishness marred or alienated us from God. And there's one more issue that makes our plight even worse because God is the ultimate judge and God is not only powerful and loving like we would always hope he would be, but he's also perfectly just. And his justice demands that our rebellion, our selfishness, and our sin against him be punished. And the punishment is separation from him forever. But he loves us. And so he makes a way to reconcile us to him without violating his own character and his own justice. And he does that in this way. God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in communion forever, one God. Tough to understand, but that's how he reveals himself to us. The Son leaves heaven, comes to earth, and clothes himself in human life and lives out a perfect life without any sin, the only perfect person to walk the planet. But ultimately, he came in order to pay the right penalty for our personal sin, my personal sin, your personal sin. He dies on the cross. He allows his creation to torture him to death to pay this payment. And there's a lot of stuff going on there. I mean, at one point, Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, and it, it's brutal, it's ugly, it's painful, and it's beautiful. Because God, our Creator, loved us enough to die for us, to redeem us, so that He could forgive us without violating His justice. And then the way we get that forgiveness is through faith. Cannot earn it. There's nothing we can do to obligate God to make Him owe us. 
It's simply through faith. And here's what I mean by faith. That you believe Jesus is who He says He is, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. You believe who He is, and you trust, you place your trust in what He has done for us in that His death on the cross paid was sufficient to pay for all my personal sins and all your personal sins, past, present, and even future. So we believe who Jesus is, and we put our trust that His death on the cross was enough to pay for our sins. When we do that, and and that comes with a desire, when we realize how much God loves us, it comes with a desire that we want to love Him back. We don't always do that so great, but we want to. That's what it means to be a Christian. And when that happens, our life is infused with hope, with meaning, with purpose. And whenever we have a bad day, we don't stop thinking about things. We think about God and how He's revealed Himself to us and that life really does mean something. That's what it means to be a believer. If you have any questions about that, we would love to talk to you after the service in room one. No pressure. You could talk for five seconds or ten minutes or, you know, whatever, where we'll set up a time to talk longer. Or if you want some resources or just anything, we'll meet you in room one. Just several of us pastors will just be hanging out there. No pressure. But what we want for everyone here more than anything else is that they would discover God's meaning in your life by having a relationship with Him forever through faith. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. God, first of all, we thank You for loving us and and God, help us to love others, all people. And and Father, because there might be a lot of our friends and neighbors and and others that might be here in the room, Lord, we thank you for them being here, and we pray that was a positive experience for them. And Father, also that maybe they would feel your tug on their heart, and and we're asking you to draw them closer to yourself. And Lord, help us to be a tool in doing that. And Father, we thank you for the meaning and purpose that you give in our lives, and I thank you for all these people here sitting through this weird sermon. And, uh, and Lord, thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.